Good morning from WKYT News. I'm Bill Bryant and we welcome you to Kentucky Newsmakers. Hope you're enjoying your weekend. Later, travelers are eager to fly again and we'll talk to the head of Bluegrass Airport about trends he's watching and what has gotten done at the airport during the pandemic. Eric Frankel will be with us in just a little bit, but first, Kentucky U.S. Senator Rand Paul is joining us. Senator Paul has made headlines recently for pressing for a relaxation of rules about masks. Paul has also pressed hard for business reopenings as there are promising indicators in the COVID-19 pandemic. He stood with all Republicans in Congress voting against the COVID Relief Act that is sending billions of dollars to Kentucky. Kentucky is dealing with the aftermath of the winter wrath, including ice storms and flooding that left historic damage behind. Senator Senator Paul has indicated he is seeking a third term in Washington next year. Senator Paul, welcome. We appreciate very much uh, you giving us uh, a few minutes of your time. Thanks for having me, Bill. Let's get right to what's uh, had you in the news recently. The uh, pandemic has been uh, long and hard for everybody. Uh, you challenged Dr. Anthony Fauci, saying that some people are wearing masks for theater. He strongly denies that, says it's still necessary. Do you think we're at a point where people are wearing masks simply for show? You know, I think the burden is on the government and should be on the government to show us the scientific evidence that after you've been vaccinated or after you've gotten the disease naturally that you're still spreading it. Uh, we've been studying this for over a year now and there are no scientific studies that show widespread spreading of the disease. In fact, it's the opposite. The vaccine works so well that so far there's not really a reported hospitalization or a death after the vaccination. Now, if you say, oh, there was one 89-year-old on chemotherapy who died that got a reinfection, you can find exceptions to the rule. But the rule is, and it's overwhelmingly positive, this is good news for all of us, if you've been vaccinated or if you've had the disease, there isn't widespread reinfection or widespread uh, infection of others. Until there is proof of that, there's no real reason to wear a mask. The mask is theater because he's not really telling you the truth. He's, he's wearing the mask in order to say, oh, it just is a good thing and to be civil, we should all wear masks. And that's not science. Science is evidence and I think the burdens on the government, they should show us the evidence. Senator, would you make that distinction that if people have been vaccinated or have had COVID, uh, that they then should be exempt from the rule and that others who have not been uh, should still mask up? In a free society, what would happen is every individual would make their decision. So for example, kids under the age of 25, the rate of uh, the risk of death is about one in a million. This is less than the seasonal flu. In the seasonal flu, we didn't mandate that children wear masks. So the death rate is higher for seasonal flu than COVID for children. So should we mandate wearing masks? No, I think we should base it on the risk. If you're above 80, this, this virus, the COVID virus, is maybe a hundred times greater risk than the seasonal flu was. So it's very, very dangerous above 80 and also with obesity. So there are people at high risk. And I think because we do a one size fits all, everybody's saying, well, government's just lying to me. So why should I listen to them? We should be honest with people. For young people, this is a very, very low risk disease. For older people, it's a high risk disease. And also for people who are overweight is a high risk disease. There are important things about this, but we shouldn't just sort of have this one size fits all that ignores the science, ignores the evidence, because then people tend to doubt the people who are giving them these orders and mandates. 
All right, let's talk about uh, the economy. Uh, Senator, you uh, opposed the nearly $2 trillion COVID Relief Act, as did all Republicans in Congress. As you know, it is sending uh, several billion dollars to Kentucky state and local governments and to schools. Uh, do you think that federal spending is uh, an overreaction uh, to what we're facing? Well, there's no money to give anyone. We don't have any money up here. We are a trillion dollars short just with our normal spending. So government every year spends money on military, they spend money on welfare, they spend money on Medicare, Medicaid, Social Security, food stamps. Those are the big items of government. But we spend a trillion dollars more than we bring in. We bring in about three trillion and we spend four trillion. Well, last year we borrowed an, an extra three trillion. So we had about a four, four and a half trillion dollar deficit last year. Now we're doing the same thing. The Democrat bill borrows two trillion. I think there are limits to how much we can borrow. And I think ultimately it, it damages the value of the currency. And when that happens, prices rise and those who are least able to absorb rising prices, poor and middle class, those on fixed wages, will see prices rise more rapidly than their wages and they'll get squeezed by this. And so it's one of these things that looks good in the front end. I'll give you a thousand dollars. and like, who would turn down a thousand dollars? People say it's popular. Well, sure it's popular, but our, our, we have to think about the unintended or the long-term consequences of what this could do to the country. Well, now comes talk of uh, more potential spending, maybe a, a $3 trillion uh, infrastructure package that is at least uh, being discussed or it's reportedly being discussed. Uh, do you uh, agree that we need to address some of these uh, infrastructure issues in the country? Uh, or again, do you think that this is something that uh, we can't afford? I'm for more infrastructure, and I've proposed several different bills to try to help pay for infrastructure. Mine are more economically feasible. I've offered that the $50 billion a year we spend in Afghanistan building roads for Afghanistan should stop immediately, should have stopped 15 years ago, and that that money should be spent on roads in our country. That'd be $50 billion. There's another $26 billion that we spend in foreign aid welfare around the world. And I'm like, yeah, help people when you have a surplus. But when you got a deficit, why don't you help your own people first? And so I would spend that money on roads. That's 50 plus 26. That's about $75 billion. And then I have one other proposal called the Penny Plan for Infrastructure. And what it would do is it would tell all departments of government, you have to cut your budget by 1% by eliminating waste, which I think is very reasonable. But when we take the savings from the waste and we put it into infrastructure, that's another 50 to 60 billion last year. So we'd have over 100 billion dollars a year for infrastructure. And that's, you know, that's a pretty hefty amount, it's a lot more than we're spending now. But it would be done in a responsible way. The Democrats are going to do three trillion by just borrowing three trillion. They are going to bankrupt our country. And I really, really am worried about the country with borrowing so much money so rapidly more than any time in our history um, this borrowing will exceed any uh, borrowing capacity that we've ever had in our entire history including world war ii senator paul the uh, recent shootings in atlanta and colorado have renewed calls for limitations on the ready access to guns opponents say gun laws won't work uh, do you expect that there will be a spirited debate upcoming uh, uh, on access to guns where do you start uh, in that discussion you know, I think we should all start with uh, sympathy and sorrow for the people who were killed. I mean, a police officer gave his life up. He had seven kids. He was a real person with a real family. And I think that's where our sympathy should be. Instead, I think a lot of politicians, some on both sides of the aisle, rush to the podium and say, this is what we have to do now and we're going to fix this problem. 
it's not as simple as people make it out to be. Let's say you banned all guns, which I'm not in favor of. But let's say you banned all guns or banned all assault weapons, was what Joe Biden is saying. Would that eliminate crime? Well, it would not even scratch the surface because 80% of weapons that are used to commit crimes are stolen. So what you do is you would eliminate weapons from a lot of law-abiding citizens, but what you would do in the process is probably do little to affect crime because many of the crimes are committed with stolen weapons. So I don't think it would work, but there also is this little sticking point of the Second Amendment, which is part of the Bill of Rights, which guarantees our right to ownership of, of guns for self-defense and otherwise. But I, I think that the tragedies are uh, awful, and we ought to remember that these are real people who have suffered and died, but they shouldn't be used as pawns in a, in a political debate. Some uh, talk about uh, temporary uh, emotional or uh, mental status, that uh, it might be a good idea to limit access to uh, guns for someone in that circumstance for a limited period of time. Do you go there? We actually have some of that. So for example, if, if a loved one in your household or that you know of is threatening to commit suicide, um, if they're a danger to themselves, um, there is a court proceeding you can go through. It's important that there be a court proceeding because you could also see why um, people are just mad at their spouse or mad at their kid or mad at their cousin where they say, you know, he's unstable, take his guns. There has to be a proceeding because the person has to get to defend themselves. And so as long as there's a court proceeding where you defend yourself and there's actually a trial of some sort, either before a judge or a jury, then I would be fine with that. The other way we can do this is, is that if you're mentally ill or you're an angry sort of homicidal sociopath, like some of these killers that have been in the school, if you threaten people, that is a crime. The mass shooting that happened at Parkland, that shooter had been threatening people for years and everybody had been whitewashing it, including the school system. And really the school system, you want to talk about who should be punished for that? The killer, obviously, within the school system for letting that kid be mainstreamed back into school because he was a rotten apple who was a, a killer waiting to happen and people knew it. People were afraid of him for years. You know, he was already banned from bringing a backpack in because they worried about him bringing a gun. He had no business being there. But banning guns for law-abiding citizens wouldn't have fixed this. Let's let's ban this kid, you know. But there still has to be a proceeding. Even when a person is perceived to be bad, has to be a proceeding where they get to defend themselves. Otherwise, we'd have a tyrannical government that everybody just points fingers at people and they are put in jail or have their rights taken away. Senator, as you know, there's been a long-term discussion on immigration in this country. Is Congress... Uh, is something on the horizon at this point to potentially address the uh, the situation at the uh, southern U.S. border? You know, I know a lot of immigrants in Bowling Green and across Kentucky, and they're good people. Many of them and most of them came here lawfully. They're hardworking people, and I think that shouldn't be lost in the debate. But at the same time, I don't think you can have an open border. If you have an open border and you have a large welfare state like we have with health care and education, all these things provided to people, they will overwhelm the system. There was a poll a few years ago that said if anybody who could come was allowed to come, over 700 million people would come. That would double the size of our country. So uh, mass migration and encouraging people's mistakes. So Biden saying that uh, we're not going to have any rules at the border. Half of Central America is walking up here now. So it is a crisis and it's going to be a problem. And we can't handle it. One of the things Trump did very well is he had what's called a remain in Mexico policy he negotiated with Mexico. As people came up and they wanted to apply to come across, they stayed in Mexico until they were approved to come across. What that did is it discouraged some of them, put in place a process, 
and then we didn't automatically send them to like Massachusetts or Alaska. If they get across now, we are sending people inland and they never come back and are adjudicated. They're here for good once they come across. One in-state question here, and I know they're signaling you that uh, our time's about to uh, expire here, but there are some uh, voter reforms passed by the Kentucky General Assembly, uh, championed by the Secretary of State. Are you supportive of uh, the changes that will mean more early voting uh, next year in Kentucky? You know, I've never been opposed to early voting. I think that voting early and in person is fine. I think it's harder to verify voting by mail. And so I think the vast majority of people should vote in person, but if they come early, I don't think that makes a big difference. And it does help with the convenience for, for working families. Most importantly, I think that when you apply for a ballot to vote by mail, you should apply for it. It shouldn't be some left wing or some right wing group doing it. It shouldn't be the government doing it. It should be you of your own initiative applying for a ballot and getting it. And if we do it that way, I think we can have elections that we can all believe in. I, by and large, think Kentucky did a pretty good job with their election. We need to verify. When everybody's, when a lot of people are voting by mail, you need to verify they haven't already voted before they come and vote in person. And some of it can be innocent. People just forget, now, did I vote by mail or not two months ago? And then they show up. And I think our system worked pretty well in that we had to verify. You know, they had iPads there to tell if you'd already voted. But... You do have to have controls in place, and I think the more people that vote in person, the better chance we have of both sides, Republicans and Democrats, believing in the election. Senator, in closing, you do a plan to seek a third term in 2022? I do, and since we think COVID's on the wane now, and I think we're doing better, we're beginning to travel a little more around the state. You know, last year wasn't as much, but I will be traveling quite a bit more around the state. We've already got a couple trips planned. Senator Rand Paul, thank you for being with us. We appreciate it very much. Thank you, Bill. See you soon. And stay with us now. How has Bluegrass Airport used the pandemic in hopes of flying high once again? The airport's executive director joins us next on Kentucky Newsmakers. Welcome back to Kentucky Newsmakers. The pandemic impacted airline travel hard. That was certainly noticed at Bluegrass Airport. That was described as a ghost town during a lot of 2020. But Americans are starting to fly again. Over the last two weeks, daily passengers have topped two million across the nation. Airlines are starting to look ahead and make announcements about better times to come. Allegiant is adding a direct flight from Lexington to Houston in June. And even during the toughest of times, American Airlines bet on Lexington and added a quick direct flight to Miami. How did the airport use this downtime? What will it take to get things back to normal? And how important will it be to get a real ID if you plan air travel later this year? Eric Frankel is executive director at Bluegrass Airport, and he joins us. Eric, thank you so much for being with us. We appreciate it. Thank you, Bill. Thanks for having me back. You know, things were really flying high for Bluegrass Airport before the pandemic. You uh, were billing it as one of America's fastest growing airports and then that plummet of last year. Uh, what was it like uh, during those days when things were so quiet at the airport? Well, I tell you, of course, like with every other industry, we were hit pretty hard and it was, it was dramatic. We were on pace to have another record year for the, just based on what January and February's activity was last year. So. March hit, obviously the world changed and we were a part of that uh, change. So the industry overall, I think, uh, went down 95% in the month of April. And then we've been hovering around 35%, well, being down 65% pretty much since then, which is pretty consistent with the rest of the nation uh, overall. So it's been, a, it's been a struggle, there's no question about it. And like a lot of other industries, we had to find our way through and 
um, we think we have. I'm really uh, grateful for the leadership of our board, not only their current board, but the past board that was really uh, thoughtful enough about the future in terms of building our reserves and letting us sustain uh, an event like this of this magnitude. And, and of course, our employees stepped up tremendously as well. We had to make a lot of changes, a lot of difficult decisions, like a lot of other industries. And I'm just grateful for our employees and, and maintaining a good attitude and doing the job because of course, as you know, we were essential industry infrastructure, so we couldn't close, we couldn't change our hours of operation, and um, we basically had to treat, you know, every, you know, if it was one person walking through that checkpoint or a hundred or a thousand people walking through that checkpoint, we had the same regulatory yeah. environment, same safety, same security. Um, so it was a challenge. You had a lot um, to manage. No doubt. Yeah. Uh, yeah. How were you able to uh, to maybe get some things done during that uh, downtime with no uh, no crowds around? Yeah, that, I mean, great point. I mean, we we struggled with this right kind of from the beginning where we saw this somewhat as an opportunity to do some things that we really, frankly, had a very difficult time doing, um, particularly improvements to the parking lot and the parking garage because obviously we're seven day, three hundred sixty five day or twenty four hour you know 365 day year operation so we couldn't move thousands of cars to do improvements that we needed to do and so um, while of course our finances were down we did take this opportunity to do a lot of improvements to the parking area and the structure and, and some of the things that um, may not be as noticed by folks but needed to be done and were, were important the CDC, you know, is still discouraging non-essential business and personal travel, but it is spring break. Uh, clearly, uh, many people are getting vaccinated at this point, and the number of people are jetting off to somewhere is growing fast. How do you handle that, uh, that, that message on one hand and then the sort of reality on the other? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's been tough. I mean, we are certainly sensitive, and um, we're obviously regulated by the CDC as well as FAA, and of course, we're sensitive to uh, our mayor's goals and objectives and our governor's goals and objectives, and we we, we have to provide this, this ability for people to move about, particularly our medical workers that needed to get around the country. Um, by the same token, we can't tell people not to travel. Uh, we just want people to be responsible. I think the whole aviation industry, whether it's the airports themselves or the airlines, have taken great steps to improve the safety of the experience and um, mitigate the spread of the virus as much as possible. So I feel like we've, we've struck that right balance. I think every day that the more people get vaccinated, of course, more people are going to want to travel. And that surge is going to be another challenge for us, for us to, to, to be able to surge back up. In honesty, too. So. We mentioned that even in these tough times, uh, American has uh, added a direct flight to Miami, Allegiant uh, doing a direct Houston starting in June. Uh, the airlines do seem to still be betting on Lexington. Yeah, I mean, we were really pleased with that. We had been trying to get Miami service for quite some time, actually. We felt that was a good destination for our community, for our region. Um, so we were happy when they started. They just started it seasonal to see how it works. Um, so we're going to talk to them again about bringing it back next next uh, winter. Um, but then the Houston service was a bit of a surprise, honestly. We'd had Houston service before via United, but uh, Allegiant wanted to take a chance on us that we could make that work. And uh, we're going to try to give that a shot uh, starting in June. Um, for the next couple of months, we'll have direct service to, uh, to Houston on pretty reasonable fares, I would say. United's using a new uh, aircraft for the flights to uh, Orlando as people uh, go to uh, the Central Florida and the Disney World region. Uh, big selling point for that, I think, is some of the storage space uh, available uh, in the cabin, right? Yeah, I mean, I, I think that's one of the challenges, though, we too. we they 
because you know give credit to the airlines they've been pretty flexible organizations as well they change aircraft in and out kind of regularly what serves lexington and frankly what serves other airports too so it's a little hard for us to know um how that how that's going to work um, because we don't know on a flight to flight basis which aircraft they're going to use sometimes until things settle back down and hopefully in the fall we'll get to a little more consistent um, aircraft type and, and destination and, and frequency. Do you see this Eric being a gradual uh, increase in air travel or do you think that you know here in a couple of weeks it may just uh, all of a sudden be wild at the airport again? Uh, I'll tell you if last week gives any indication it was a big surge just this past seven days and I'm sure you know if you've followed the TSA statistics I think we're going to see a leveling off here for the month of April and May and then I suspect we're going to have a pretty robust summer for June, July, and August. I think a lot of the unknown for us is what happens when the vacation travelers are done and the kids go back to school, God willing. Um, so what happens in the fall? Um, and that's what's really hard for us to predict. The real ID law has been a, a moving uh, deadline for Kentuckians for years as the state has gotten several extensions. That is about to end uh, on October 1st. That's the day those delays run out. What do you want passengers to know as they plan ahead? Well, great question, and I'm glad you asked that because this sort of does kind of get lost in the shuffle a little bit because of COVID. Um, but there is gonna be a new driver's license required. It's called Real ID, and it's, it takes a little bit of a process for people to get that. But you will not be able to travel without one of the new um, driver's licenses called Real ID or a passport. So we're really gonna be reaching out to the community and everyone to, um, because it takes a little effort to do it. And so I think between our federal partners, our state uh, licensing partners and the airport industry, we're gonna be trying to get the word out to don't wait until October 1st to try to get your ID. You can do it anytime, basically, um, and you can do it by appointment. And so we're gonna definitely be encouraging people to, to move in that direction because it's important. Do you see general aviation picking up uh, as well as uh, things are improving in the pandemic? Yeah, actually general aviation and the corporate aviation side, um, we, they took a, a hit initially, probably when the pandemic first started. And, in April and May, but they've been pretty robust. We've had a lot of people out here learning to fly and a lot of people flying privately. So that into that sector of the industry seemed to do a lot better than the, the commercial airline industry. Eric, 15 years almost since the uh, Comair crash at Bluegrass Airport. It is part of the airport's history and it was also a, a catalyst for many safety changes. Still painful in the community, no doubt. Uh, do you anticipate any kind of uh, commemoration for that uh, in August? That's a great question. Uh, we, we certainly would be supportive of that. We, I don't know that. I mean, the 5191 Commission really were the ones that kind of drive those decisions. We'll be reaching out to them in the summer to see if we can assist in any way if they choose to do something. Interestingly enough, we are also going to be doing a reconstruction of our main runway uh, this summer, which will close the, the main runway for uh, three days. So those two things are kind of going to go a uh, similar time frame again. And so we'll be reaching out to the commission and see if they would like us to do anything special. We certainly want to do our part. We know it, uh, it's a painful event for our community. Anything else you want us to know uh, about the airport as we uh, head toward summer? Well, I tell you what, we're excited. Uh, we're, we're certainly open for business. We're looking forward to having people back. Um, we would just remind people too, as they're planning their vacation plans, 
Um, again, to give yourself a little more time, we don't know, again, what that surge is going to be like and what lines might be like getting through the checkpoint. So just a helpful reminder. We're ready. We're excited. And uh, we're looking forward to having people back. Well, it's uh, good to catch up with you. Thank you very much, Eric Frankel, the executive director at Thank Bluegrass so Airport. Thank you very much. And stay with us. We'll be back on WKYT's Kentucky Newsmakers. And welcome back to Kentucky Newsmakers. As the surge of undocumented immigrants entering the nation continues, many are watching the U.S.-Mexico border. But Democrats and Republicans say there is another border that requires our attention as well. Our national political analyst Greta Van Susteren explains. Hello, I'm Greta Van Susteren, and here is your full court fast break. Chaos at the southern border, a massive spike in illegal border crossings. The Biden administration negotiating with Mexico, trying to curb the wave of people seeking asylum in the U.S. On Capitol Hill, the immigration battle is intensifying. But there is one area where Democrats and Republicans agree. They both say Mexico needs to shore up its southern border in order to curb the wave of migrants entering the U.S. from Mexico's northern border. Texas Democratic Congressman Henry Coyier's district is on the U.S.-Mexico border. I spoke to him right before his latest trip to a U.S. Border Patrol facility. I think it's important that they go and renegotiate those agreements with Guatemala, El Salvador, Honduras, uh, to try to keep people over there. We're playing defense on the one-yard line called the U.S. border. I think we need to play defense on their 20-yard line, get Mexico Guatemala and the other countries to do a lot more. We need to work with Mexico, get them to secure the border because our problem is their problem. I promise you. Oklahoma Republican Senator James Lankford agrees. We need Guatemala to enforce its border uh, with Honduras and El Salvador. We need Mexico to enforce its border with Mexico and Guatemala. And then that helps us as they're coming north because not everybody that's coming is coming from the Northern Triangle countries. The Biden administration is working with these nations to determine the root cause of why people are leaving those countries and coming here to the United States. President Biden's U.S. Citizenship Act of 2021 also proposes putting $4 billion over four years towards addressing the reasons people are fleeing their home countries. Want more Full Court Press? Tune in Sunday. We bring politics home, covering the national stories that impact you. And remember, you can catch Full Court Press with Greta Van Susteren this morning at 1130 here on WKYT. Thank you so much for being with us for WKYT's Kentucky Newsmakers. We'll see you bright and early this week for WKYT This Morning, and we hope you make it a good week ahead.